0: Welcome back to Unprecedential. I'm Adam White. Even in our most chaotic times, our government works on a reliable cycle of constitutional ceremonies. Presidential elections every four years, congressional elections every two, a State of the Union address in the winter, and every summer, the Supreme Court wraps up its annual work with a flurry of constitutional decisions on the most difficult and controversial issues of the year. I'll admit this last one still amazes me nearly 20 years after going off to law school, watching our entire political system pause in the middle of the summer to hear what nine lawyers have to say about the state of constitutional law and government in America. It's quite a scene. And in recent years, the political debates surrounding the court have led some to question the court's very legitimacy. This is a timeless debate, of course, but it seems even more intense in the last few years after the election of Donald Trump and his appointments of Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh, to succeed Antonin Scalia and Anthony Kennedy, raising the possibility of a sustained conservative majority on the Supreme Court for years to come. In an article in the winter 2020 issue of National Affairs, an author puts the question bluntly, is the Roberts Court legitimate? To discuss that question and the broader debates around judicial legitimacy, I'm pleased to be joined by that article's author, my friend, Professor Michael Grieva of George Mason University's Antonin Scalia Law School. Michael, welcome. Thank
1: you, Adam. Thanks for having me.
0: And as it happens, Michael was a resident scholar at AEI from 2000 to 2012. In fact, I think that's how we first met many, many years ago when I was a law student visiting AEI and met you and Walter Burns.
1: Yeah, that dates you, my man. (laughs)
0: <laughs> and me. And you. <laughs> well, speaking of young people at AEI, we're also joined as always by my, my colleague,
2: Tal Kang.: Hello, Tal. Hi, Adam. I don't feel so young anymore. The days and months are, are passing by and we're all getting old. <laughs> well, and speaking of getting old,
0: Tal heads off to, to law school soon. So he's, he's about to jump into a lifelong discussion of the things we're going to discuss today. So have fun with that, Tal. Yeah, I will. Counting down the days. Michael, let's just jump right in at the very beginning of your article. You say, the question of whether the, courts, the current Supreme Court led by Chief Justice Roberts is legitimate may sound paranoid or absurd at first and unworthy of serious consideration. Then you go on to consider it at length. But why is judicial <laughs> yeah. legitimacy such an issue these days? Well, actually, what is judicial
1: legitimacy? I'll start with a book that I discuss in that article at some length by Richard Fallon, one of your profs, I take it, at Harvard Law School, who asks that question, is the Roberts Court legitimate, and how should we think about the court's legitimacy in general? And the distinction he draws is between what he calls sociological legitimacy, that is to say, the general public acceptance of the Roberts Court's or the court's rulings, even if people at times disagree with this, that or the other decision, they still think the court plays a legitimate and important role in American politics. So that's one side. And the other side is what he sometimes calls moral legitimacy. That is to say, what the court does cannot just be a function of public opinion, okay? It has to be legally and constitutionally grounded, And it has to be accepted by sort of people who study law and teach law as generally sort of within the ballpark. They can't just start making things up. These things may conflict and they may conflict or at least these two kinds of legitimacy, public acceptance on the one hand and legal plausibility, let's call it that, on the other, may at times conflict and that risk is particularly high. In a sharply polarized and partisan environment, and we happen to live in that kind of environment. And so the sharp polarization of American politics, the, the sort of ferocious partisanship, oh. makes it particularly urgent to think about, you know, how what can the court, what should the court do about its role in American politics in general. So that's the way I think about it.
0: Those two kinds of legitimacy. And I, I, I've often thought about them the same way in slightly different terms. I talk about perceived legitimacy versus okay. theoretical legitimacy, yeah. what Fallon calls the moral legitimacy. I'd say for most lawyers, that tends to align with their own preferred view of the Constitution. If you had, yeah. If the court were only to interpret the Constitution the way I think they should, or actually wouldn't put it that way, if only they were to do it the way they should, then the court would be legitimate. And you said the two... Types of legitimacy sometimes conflict. It seems to me that when we talk about these things, the speaker usually assumes that they align. That if the court were to do its job correctly, in theory, the public would 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 rally behind it. And that's not new. You can find that all the way back in Hamilton's famous Federal seventy eight. In some ways, and and more recently, uh, including maybe an opinion we'll get back to a little bit later, Justice Scalia's dissent in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which is a lot about judicial legitimacy. But oftentimes, you find the speaker saying, well, if they just do their job correctly, the public will rally behind them. But as you say, it's not always the case. The court has to ultimately justify its decisions. This is all a long way of just clarifying. These are two different concepts, but they oftentimes overlap by the way that they're presented. The legitimacy in theory and, and the legitimacy in terms of how the public sees the the court. You point out in your article that in the last about 20 years, the court's popularity or approval ratings, however you want to put it, their poll numbers have declined, not as much as other parts of government, but they've, they've declined. And you outline four or five reasons why you think that's the case of why the court's legitimacy is, is increasingly questioned by the public. There's the partisan polarization among the public in general. There's the fact that we don't have a dominant political coalition. And so the, the rapid swings back and forth they change people's expectations about what the court might be in the near future, right? That we're just, yeah. we're just an election away from, from regaining the court or losing it. Third is that the fact that so much of the debate around the court, as you say, bypasses normal political institutions. Then the last one is that the court, it now faces its main battles are not so much with Congress, but with the executive and the administrative state.
1: Let's start with polarization. How has political polarization affected the court? In many, many ways, I think. For one thing, I mean, the high level of agitation affects the court. I mean, the the justices sort of cannot be immune from that. They've never been, it would be unrealistic to expect it. That's one thing. The second thing is that the appointment battles, or a second thing, I should say, is that the battles over every new appointment to the United States Supreme Court and increasingly the appellate courts and on some occasions, even the district courts, all of that becomes much, much more bitter and grim and distressing to my mind. All of that just has to affect them in, in one way or the other. It will affect the way they think about their docket on the Supreme Court, which is almost entirely discretionary. It will affect the way in which they sort of anticipate public responses to to their rulings. It even affects by now the way briefs, in particular, amicus briefs are written and supplied to the Supreme Court, which have become much more overtly partisan and, in some instances, menacing and threatening retaliation against the court should it come to the wrong decision. Yeah, we're gonna talk about that one in a little bit. (laughs) Okay, fine. (laughs) I did not mean to... (laughs) No, it's okay. (laughs) ...to steal your thunder there. So, I think that's the most obvious factor. I'll I'll add one thing to this. One of the ways in which these two kinds of legitimacy, sociological legitimacy, legal plausibility hang together, okay, is it's enormously important to have a functioning legal culture. You know, law schools, practicing lawyers, judges, legal commentators, and journalists—it matters greatly. I mean, that culture, that constituency—it seems to me has to do two things: it has to have a reasonably clear understanding of what is legally plausible and legitimate, and in balance, and what is completely made up and out of bounds. So, to go back to Dick Fallon. He himself is not an originalist, okay, but he thinks that originalism is a perfectly plausible and legitimate theory of legal interpretation and legal understanding. And, you know, to turn that around, I think, I mean, I disagree personally with the way Richard Fallon thinks about the Constitution and law in general with that sort of legal processes thinking, but I can teach it as perfectly legitimate and, you know, perfectly intelligible. So that's one thing you have to have a legal culture that has that understanding. And that culture then has to do another thing, which is sort of translate what the Supreme Court and the federal courts in general are doing to a broader public. I mean, let's not kid ourselves, right? People in Nebraska or Idaho or, you know, for that matter, New York or whoever, wherever, they don't spend their time thinking about, what is the Supreme Court doing? About this, that, or the other thing. Most of that stuff is completely unintelligible to anybody who doesn't spend his or her life in that domain. But that, so that all of that has to be translated. And the polarization of our legal culture itself is in that light a more distressing phenomenon than even sort of political polarization writ large.
0: And let's talk about this a little bit, actually. This is a really interesting point. That the legal culture, I mean, who does it include? It, I suppose it includes the lawyers, the law professors, and the legal journalists. These people who, as you say, help to sort of translate the work of the court into the public's understanding. And they play a crucial, crucial role. Just focusing on in your home territory, and then I also, you know, I'm, we're colleagues at George Mason, I teach there as well. In our corner of the world, legal academia it seems that they, that law professors are leading the vanguard in constantly sort of challenging the legitimacy of the court, maybe not as directly as the Senate amicus brief we'll get back to. But in recent years, especially, I'd say especially since Kennedy's retirement, so many law professors have wanted to raise the question of judicial legitimacy much faster than the rest of the public why do you suppose that is? I mean, setting aside the politics, why is it that law professors and legal journalists seem so intent on devaluing the very part of government that gives those people themselves, the law professors and the legal journalists, sort of a, a weighty role in society? If the court is illegitimate, then, then law professors and legal journalists seem utterly superfluous. Why aren't they working to, to, to rebuild the legitimacy or, or maintain the legitimacy of the court rather than tear it down? Not to ask you to speak on behalf of the entire legal professoriate, but...
1: (laughs) Yeah, no. So let's first make clear, look, Scalia Law School is the citadel. It's, you know, an island of sanity. Nobody cares about the politics in the classroom or on the faculty. It's just a great, great place to be. That's more than you can say about most other law schools. I think, I mean, I don't have a coherent theory of why this is. Okay, but I think dissension itself sort of feeds that tendency. Eventually, people want to be part of a collective enterprise, and if that enterprise is, let's go up against this court, you know, then they'll they'll join it. I mean, it, look, it's it's broader than that, Adam. Look, when I worked for AI, there was something called the AI Brookings Joint Center on Regulation. Right. I remember and, it well. Uh, right. And, and my boss, Chris Muth at the time, had in his youthful days run a comparable enterprise, I mean, on regulatory reform with Judge Doug Ginsburg and Justice Stephen Breyer, I mean, long before they, you know, became judges at Harvard at the Kennedy School. And at the AI Brookings Joint Center, you know, that lots of people hung around. They had a common agenda, which was sensible regulatory reform. That constituency has completely disappeared. You cannot imagine anything like that ever again. So it's not just the academy, it's the think tank world. It's the journalistic world that has become increasingly sort of disorganized. And it, it's just hard to find find common ground. That is not entirely responsive to your question, but it's the best I can do.
0: Well, I don't think there is an easy answer to the question. So forgive me for asking in the first place. But it does, it's one of these things that really does amaze me, the more I've I've been thinking about the court's legitimacy, what makes the court legitimate, how do we sustain that legitimacy. There's a a lot of things, and we'll we'll turn to to Congress in a little while again. but, But even just looking again at parts of government or of society, that intermediate between the court and the public. And this is something that Tocqueville touched on in his study of democracy, right? When he talked about law in America, he focused on the, the judges and the lawyers. And uh, he wrote in separate chapters, but the themes are very much intertwined. And his idea of the role of, of lawyers as this intermediary body that helps sort of fits between the people and the institutions of government, he was focused mostly on executive power. but looking at that and then looking at the way the judges would conduct themselves and looking at the way that all these pieces hang together, it does just sort of amaze me that that the parts of our society who, again, get their own legitimacy, not legitimacy, but their relevance from the, the, the legitimacy of the court, the legal journalists, the, the lawyers, and the law professors, to watch them really tear down the, the court's legitimacy is just a marvel. But I digress. As I said at the beginning, Hamilton talked about this in, in Federalist 78 and familiar listeners Noah, it's hard to get through an episode of this podcast without the mentioning the Federalists, so I apologize. But but, no. in, but, but, but you know, in, in, in those famous lines about neither force nor will, but merely judgment, it's preceded by Hamilton saying, or when he returns to this question of will and judgment, he says, in response to Brutus, who's worried about the court substituting its values for that of the Constitution, Hamilton says, he sort of concedes the point, and he says, this criticism can be of no weight to say that the courts on the pretense of a repugnancy may substitute their own pleasure for the constitutional intentions of the legislature. He says, if that were to come true, if it prove anything, it would prove that there ought to be no judges distinct from that body. And so Hamilton concedes that if the court isn't doing the work of a court as distinct from the policymaking parts of government, then yeah, there's no point in having a court as such, right, leave that yeah. to the legislature. So he, he understands this. Though in, in Federal 78, he famously says the court should exercise neither force nor will, but merely judgment. But merely judgment sort of understates it, right? It's, 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 judgment is a difficult thing for, for courts to do. But I think he offers some hints as to how the court might mute some of the political pressures. And it's things like a deferential standard of review in some cases. As he says, so long as the court can, by any fair construction, Right, reconcile a statute to uh, the Constitution. It ought to do so. It should only strike down. I don't know that he'd go so far as Thayer, right? The clear, the clear error rule, the, the famous article from a century ago. But Hamilton seems to suggest that these things can be mitigated through the way the court does its work. Right? It needs, as, as our friend Peter Walson says, the court needs fortitude to stand up and actually defend the Constitution when necessary. But I think there's some some hints in in Hamilton that the court ought to strike down those statutes as a last resort, not a first resort. Or am I being, am I being too much of a wimp here? Am I, what do you think, Michael?
1: Let me first say something about that famous Federalist paper. Okay. What it illustrates very, very powerfully to my mind is the significance of what we've just called legal culture, right? Yeah. Hamilton has just enormous confidence in so lawyers as lawyers. Right, Right? and most of it is look. The reason why we want independent courts is to ride herd on these circus clowns in Congress, who you know will just do favors for their friends, and you know have to be be deterred. Right, it's not just that. I mean, that they do unconstitutional stuff. It's just that they do Spanish stuff, and you know they have to be stopped. And to that end, we need courts. Right, and what keeps the courts? bound to judgment is that, you know, they have legal training, and they come from a common culture that, you know, everybody understands. And at which point, he clears his throat and said, oh, by the way, I'm a lawyer.
0: He says I mean, not to interrupt, but let me interrupt for a second. He he says that towards the end of the essay, in much less famous words, you know, he says, we need judicial." independence, precisely so that we can get the very best lawyers to give up their lucrative law practices. I mean, he doesn't say it yep. quite that bluntly. But at the people who've spent their entire careers learning all of these laws, precedents being steeped in the culture of lawyering, and who will in turn then be bound down by a strict body of laws and precedents. But of course, the laws and precedents don't bind the judges so much as the judges bind themselves, right? They, they, yeah. they, and that comes from this culture of lawyering
1: you mentioned. Sorry. I yeah. you off. No, no, that's uh, that's okay. I think that's an important point and a very salient point to this day. I mean, one of the things that, quite frankly, bothers me a little bit about the way we now select judges, Justice Sotomayor has, has made this point very eloquently, and I think she's just darn right. It just becomes too narrow, right? So our appellate judges, you know, all fit a certain career. They come from one of or four of the five boroughs of of New York, Justice has remarked, They all went to the same law schools, you know, and there is just a lack of diversity on the Supreme Court in terms of professional experience. It would be very good to have somebody on the Supreme Court who's actually, you know, familiar with modern-day litigation, which none of them are, and their decisions, with all due respect to them, show that. I mean, you can on the on the flip side. I'll say this: on the flip side, you can argue that intense polarization has given us the best judges we've ever in justices we've ever had. Yeah, right. Because you have to be at the very top of your profession; you have to have impeccable credentials. Because otherwise, you'll never survive this internecine warfare. So there is that. But it also needs it leads to sort of, to my mind, a troublesome narrowing of the sort of the experience that they bring to it and that they become sort of it's a very narrow segment of the legal culture that we're selecting for for the courts right yeah. so there's that i do want to answer your question about the deference canons look yeah. nobody i'll say two things about it one is that the way that deference canon is usually put is the court versus the democratic process meaning the congress that enacts laws I mean, we're a million years away from times when the Supreme Court gets up and says, no, Congress, you can't do that. They have much more subtle ways of, you know, maneuvering with the Congress now. And in any event, the central problem, as you remarked earlier, to my mind, is not the court versus the Congress, it's the court and the executive and the court in the separation of power struggle itself. So there's about that. The second thing is uh, deference canons you know, are okay, to my mind, if the public has confidence in a democratic process that works to everyone's satisfaction or, you know, most of the time in any event, right? You may dislike this, that, or the other result, but by and large, you say to yourself, yeah, fine, okay. In an environment where people despair of the political process itself, right? What the court maybe ought to look for is not so much sort of, you know, whatever, because that further At that point, you really ask yourself, well, what are these people there for, right? Why do we have them in the first place? What you want to angle for, it seems to me, is neutral principles that discipline politics. And what I mean by neutral is you want this rule regardless of... Which party might be in power at any given moment. Yeah. Right. And that to my mind is sort of the, the the fundamental problem that confronts the Roberts Court now. They're angling for those kinds of principles. When they're not doing that, they ought to be doing it.
0: You raised a great question, right? What what are the timeless principles that the, the public could unite around to say, I don't like the outcome of this case, but I trust that it's within the 40-yard lines. I trust that it's it's reasonable. In terms of neutral principles, I think the the great genius of of what Harry Jaffa got at in his classic book, you know, Crisis of the House Divided, and then Alex Bickel followed on after that, was the only neutral principles that are gonna satisfy the, this requirement are those that have come up through American history, right, rooted in the Declaration of Independence, exemplified through decades and centuries of actual lived experience right? Those neutral principles that aren't just sort of taken from nowhere and imposed upon the public, but rather those that are rooted in and and woven into our nation's history. That might be a source of neutral principles. I obviously like it. But it's that in an era when people aren't really learning history in schools, that seems a little hopeless too.
1: Well, you've gently nudged this in the direction of rights talk. yeah, And I think in that domain, Neutral principles by now are really, really hard to come by because the court, in part due to what the court itself has contributed to that particular debate, that's really, really hard. I mean, yeah. people instantaneously take sides. What I was thinking of was things like structural principles of the Constitution, right? Federalism, the separation of powers. I'll give you one example. The court is now struggling to rearticulate. Principles that might contain or constrain the delegation of legislative power to the executive. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me, I mean, that used to have enormously partisan connotations, yeah. right? Conservatives, you know, are supposed to favor the non delegation doctrine. Liberals are supposed to be against it. Yeah, well, really, after the past three and a half years, are you still against it? So there is a principle where you know, under the right circumstances, you know, you might be able to sort of re-articulate some principle that stems that tendency. I'll give you one other example, the federal fiscal domination of state and local governments. That's a big problem to my mind. And the fact that the executive sort of controls a flow of, you know, trillions of dollars to state and local governments, and by and large, can do as it wishes within very broad outlines. That ought to make you nervous. Libertarians have been nervous. I have been nervous about it for a long time. I've been yelling and screaming for the past 20 years about it. You know, but now people are slowly (laughs) coming to realize that, oh, that too might be a problem. That too is an area where the doctrine is a bit of a mess to be kind and where you might be able to rearticulate some, you know... Boundaries, yeah. right? And that's a live debate. I'm not sitting here saying I have the theory, and I'm now telling you what it is. I'm just trying to articulate sort of areas where you might be able to rediscipline politics a little bit, not in a nonpartisan fashion, but in a neutral fashion that, in the sense that I've tried to articulate.
0: Right. And in, in your national affairs article, which I really encourage folks to to look up, you end by focusing on these, these, these questions of constitutional structure as sort of highlighted in, in recent years, litigation over the administrative state, different administrative agency actions. And you say in the article, if the court were to focus its energies on that, quote, some of the forthcoming decisions will sustain assertions of executive power, others will reject it. Some, perhaps most, will be accompanied by a great deal of partisan agitation. But in the end, most turn on fairly esoteric legal questions. That gives the court an opportunity to lower the temperature to transcend partisan divisions and to gradually develop a jurisprudence that's calculated to curtail executive excess and constitutional rot, constitutional rot being a theme you, you introduced earlier in the article about just the breakdown of constitutional norms that might not be explicitly stated in the text of the Constitution but are sort of undergirding it. That was an interesting way of putting it, and it sort of appeals to me, the the work of the court to turn down the temperature. What did you mean by that?
1: So long as everyone thinks about the Supreme Court as the body that decides five or six abortion and gay rights and gun and God decisions per year, each of them five to four, that's really a lousy way of thinking about the court. It's a bad you don't want the court to look that way, okay? But that is naturally what dominates public discussion. What you want to find is cases that are not about God, guns, and gays, okay, that involve pretty important things, but things that are a little bit more removed from public agitation and that transcend sort of partisan constituencies. If the court were to focus on those kinds of decisions, if they were to come down not sort of five to four in predictable ways, I think that would go a long, long way to buttressing the court's credibility in the public mind. To just elaborate on this, Justice Gorsuch has written a terrific book. He engages this question. I mean, he is among the judges and justices who are seriously engaged in this and very, very concerned about the the public perception of the court's role. And he points out that, look, this monomaniacal focus on, you know, five to four decisions of which there aren't that many each year, is just completely out of sync with the way courts ordinarily operate. So there are something like 125,000 district court decisions each year. Very few of them are appealed. Among those that are appealed, most the the overwhelming majority of appellate court decisions are unanimous. If you have a split among the circuits, then, so those kinds of cases, they're, by definition, the the hardest you can get, and they go to the Supreme Court, most of those come down unanimous. And so you are just looking at a vanishingly small sliver. decisions, but that then dominates the public discussion, right? And so, what you want to do is, you want to have more cases in which the court actually looks like a court and not as a sort of one more set of combatants in partisan warfare. And that's what I mean by lowering the temperature.
0: Something that just occurs to me as you describe that that sounds very compelling. The court hears so few cases, right? It only hears cases when it absolutely has to, that it sort of amplifies that small number of disagreements among itself. If the court were to hear twice as many cases, if it were to go out and hear cases that it's going to decide almost unanimously, the court would sort of, ironically, it would be busier, it would be deciding more things, it would be issuing more decisions, but it would be doing so in a way that would sort of render those exceptional cases sort of a smaller part of its docket. Even just just looking at the numbers, the court would, its cases would be even more often unanimous or or eight to one or seven to two. And sure, we'd still have the controversial cases at the end of the year, but that would just be an even smaller part of its work. And it's precisely because the court has withheld its intervention to just a very small subset of cases that it
1: seems more divided, more partisan than it actually is. I entirely agree with that. Proposition, and I think the court made a mistake. Unbeknownst to a lot of Americans, I mean, even, you know, 30 years ago, I think, I mean, Adam, you may know the numbers much, much better than I do, but the court decided twice as many cases as it does now, right? Yeah. So now it's down to 78 cases per year. Why is that? Because, and, and the answer is there are 39 days of sittings, right? And it, I mean, as if that is written in stone. And mind you, it's not just the sheer number of cases. There's a lot of housekeeping that just remains undone because the court can't be bothered. To my mind, that's a terrible thing. It's sort of legacy to my mind of sort of a very New Deal-ish attitude, right? The court at the beginning of the 20th century decided, you know, 300 cases a year, something like that. I mean, Mm -hmm that order of magnitude, right? right? And it was people like Felix Frankfurter who said, we ought to abolish diversity jurisdiction because that gives the court too much to do. Right. The court ought to consist of statesmen who decide momentous questions of public importance. And just that is just the completely wrong way of thinking about what the Supreme Court and the federal courts in general ought to do. They ought to be courts,
0: when Scalia, I mentioned earlier his, his, in past, his famous dissent in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, where the court in the early 1990s, to the surprise of many and, and the relief of many, reaffirmed the core right to abortion as announced in Roe versus Wade. Justice Scalia, in his dissent, goes on about what the court is doing to legitimacy, to the court's own legitimacy, and how the court ought to understand its place in, in American politics. Scalia chastises the justices for imposing value judgments, as he saw it, and he says that if the court does this, he says quote, "If in reality, our process of constitutional adjudication consists primarily of making value judgments." he goes on to say, "Then a free and intelligent people's attitude towards us can be expected to be and ought to be quite different. The people know that their value judgments are quite as good as those taught in any law school. maybe better." He goes on to say, maybe the, then the people should demonstrate the protest that we ought to implement their values instead of ours. But then he goes on to say, and this is, I think, key, not only that, but confirmation hearings for new justices should deteriorate into question and answer sessions in which senators go through the list of their constituents' most favored and most disfavored alleged constitutional rights and seek the nominee's commitment to support or oppose them. Scalia's writing this opinion in the early 1990s, in the immediate aftermath of the Bork hearing, the Clarence Thomas hearing, the Souter hearing, which although he proved to be a justice very different from what everybody expected when he was appointed, was an extremely controversial hearing. And the judges then and today were worried about how the Senate confirmation process was affecting the court and the public's perception of the court. Scalia's point in this this opinion was that, no, it's the court's work that's distorting the work of the Senate I suppose it does work in both directions. Where I'm going with this, Michael, is in the last 15 years, obviously, this started well before the early 2000s, but we've seen such a ratcheting up of fights in the Senate about judges. We saw it in the Bush administration over his, his, some of his appellate nominees. We saw filibusters of judicial nominations, a huge, huge fight in 2004, 2005, where the Senate came very close to eliminating the filibuster for judicial nominees. Republicans backed away from that. But then just a few years later, Senate Democrats with Harry Reid eliminated the judicial filibuster in order to confirm Obama's appointees are to the D.C. Circuit. Then immediately after that, we saw Senate Republicans under President Trump eliminate the filibuster rule for Supreme Court justices. And along the way, we've seen more and more creative tactics surrounding Judicial nominations, fights over what they called blue slips and holds, and the committee process. And ultimately, Senator McConnell and Senate Republicans preemptively announcing upon the death of Justice Scalia that they wouldn't have a vote or any process on the Garland nomination. A tactic that I supported at the time. I still think it was right. I don't think it was such a departure from precedent as its critics said. But I fully recognize that that move did further inflame the judicial nominations wars. So that's a long way of asking, how should we think about the relationship between the court's work and the work of the Senate as the Senate becomes more and more partisan, more and more inflamed in partisan politics directed at the court? Is there any way to take down the temperature in the Senate on these things? Or is that just as Scalia suggested, is that just a function of what the court itself
1: is doing? I don't think it's simply a function of what the court is doing. I think that would be too much. I think in an environment where parties are bitterly divided as they are, they fight over every inch of territory one way or the other. I don't doubt at all. I mean, I think Justice Scalia was right about that, I mean, in that dissent, and there are other opinions that he wrote along the same lines. Right, because the court made itself a sort of partisan in the in the culture wars. The court said it was settling in that case that it was set basically settling the culture war, and the culture war. Yeah, disagreed. but luck with that. Yeah, Professor Pickle had this theory that what the court was trying to do in those kinds of cases, starting with Roe versus Wade, was to sort of replay Brown versus Board, right? Anticipate a social consensus and have confidence that sort of people who oppose abortion would just go away, right, the way the racists went away. I mean, as a matter of public discourse, if not always in real life. And it's just miscalculated. To that extent, yeah, the court has contributed to this disaster. But I think by and large, you would have this fight one way or the other. Because look, I mentioned the unpredictability and the intense competitiveness of... American partisan politics and that article, right? It's bound to be 50-50 from here on out. I mean, not to eternity, but for the foreseeable future. Because if one party were to win time and again by large majority, that means the other party is leaving something on the table and that ain't going to happen, right? Mm -hmm. And so if you know that, that that is the environment in which you live, the judiciary is just one more battlefield and you're going to engage no matter what
0: earlier, you made reference to Supreme Court briefs to take up the temperature and and I chuckled because I was sure you were referring to the brief that was filed by uh, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse along with Senators Hirono, Blumenthal, Durbin, and Dillibrand. Was was I right in that guess? Yeah. This is in a case involving the Second Amendment, the right to keep and bear arms, and its application in the city of New York with respect to laws on, on, on transporting guns from one place to another. And the last paragraph of this brief was just astonishing. This was back when the court was deciding whether to take the case at all. So this is last August 2019. The last paragraph was, quote, The Supreme Court is not well and the people know it. Perhaps the court can heal itself before the public demands that it be the court be restructured in order to reduce the influence of politics, particularly on this urgent issue of gun control. A nation desperately needs it to heal. This is an astonishing threat at the end of a brief. Senators saying, back off from this case or we may have to restructure you, a thinly veiled reference to threats to pack the court, restructure the court, and so on. And Senator Whitehouse certainly hasn't backed down. He's made this threat elsewhere as well. But in this case, the court ultimately decided not to decide the case. I mean, it heard the case, but it, it issued a decision not on the merits. And Senator Whitehouse might claim victory, right, having scared the court off. I don't think that's right. I think the court's approach makes sense in light of the views of the justices who decided the case. But so much of this pressure in this case and every other hot button case seems to be directed at one person in particular, the Chief Justice, Chief Justice Roberts. Ever since his decisions in the Affordable Care Act, which as well, and I wrote this around the time of his 10th anniversary on the court, his opinion there, whatever you think of it, is totally consistent with things he had said in the past about how the court ought to go about its work. But there seems to be this constant pressure on the Chief Justice in particular to take the court in a, in a particular political direction, namely away from conservative outcomes. And maybe we'll close on this. If Chief Justice Roberts were to call you up and say, uh, Professor Griva, how should I do my job?
1: <laughs> what would you tell him? I think, personally, much more highly of the chief than a lot of my political friends and certainly my political <laughs> opponents. I think he's by and large on the right track. I mean, Chief Justice Roberts himself has given very eloquent speeches trying to explain that, look, this focus on these five to four decisions, which will happen, is misguided. Here's a bunch of decisions where we broke along unpredictable, I mean, at least not by unpredictable lines, and we broke in those or disagreed in those decisions because we had legal reasons to disagree. And, you know, those were firmly held legal positions, and they're all legitimate. And I think all of that is right. I think it's perfectly fine to exercise docket control with an eye towards sort of steering clear of sort of gratuitous decisions that you know will break down along partisan lines on on the Supreme Court. So I think that's by and large, right? The danger that you run if you pursue this course is that in order to maintain broad, broad, coalitions on the court, you may backpedal or walk away from principled lines that you really ought to articulate now and then. And, you know, I can think of decisions that the chief has written that fit that description. That's a perennial temptation. You know, one ought to be alert to it. Minimalism is not a credible strategy all by itself. But with that caveat, we ought to be grateful to have a chief like that, who, above all, has been a big contributor, as far as I can tell, to maintaining collegiality on a court, even in this environment, even under all the circumstances. It's easy to underestimate that factor in the functioning of the court. And and I think that that's all to the good.
0: Yeah. And we've seen the chief justice speak <coughs> out against criticism of judges or justices from both, uh, both President Trump and from yeah. Democrats, in yeah. recent years. Tall is somebody who's, who's about to invest three years of, of time and tuition in a legal education and then go it's off into a the big world. Mistake. And, <laughs> and then dedicate your career to this fractured, divisive, broken, delegitimized legal culture that we just discussed. I'm kind of curious. Do you have any questions?
2: Well, that's a lot of pressure. But before I even speak as a, as a law student, I think we'll save that for another time just to put on my Voice of the People hat for a second, Georgetown hat that does not fit above my headphones for all the listeners at home. A question related to the last one that Adam asked, which is not just how can the chief justice deal with this spiral of heat, polarization, and partisanship, but for citizens who may not be democratically represented on the court, but who care about the spiral of delegitimization and for whom the the discourse around the court seems to revolve generally around who started it. It was you, it was you, it was Bork, it was Estrada, it was a Supreme Court justice mouthing no at the State of the Union, whatever it is. That seems to be where the conversation is at. If I'm a concerned citizen, what can I do to make a difference in this severe problem in in an institution that we can't directly touch?
1: actively very little, (laughs) I think, right? It's just too remote. It's sort of a high politics and it just doesn't lend itself to daily agitation. What one can do, I think, and what is hugely important is to be a little more distrustful of the noise and the ruckus that comes in over the, the transom and to be a little more aware of the fact that, By and large, it's miraculous how well the court has actually weathered all these storms, and that that is because of the ordinary business of the court. The difficulty is frozen into our system, right? Because the court or the federal judiciary in general has this ambiguous status, right? On the one hand, they're just courts, right? And whatever they do, all these highfalutin decisions, they decide that just is incidental to their ordinary functioning as courts, at least most of the time. And, you know, when the court steps out of that mode, that usually spells trouble. But on the other hand, it is a coordinate branch of government. And so the notion that all of this could be totally above politics, it's just an illusion. But one should not, therefore, fall into the mistake of thinking, it's all politics. They are just politicians in robes, you know, and it's all gonna be who appointed them and who started it. So, a little bit of awareness, more awareness of the ordinary function of the court and how well it has performed despite all the obstacles that have confronted it. I think that will be a big contribution. Well, I suppose for
0: the public, the first step towards engaging with the work of the court is seeking out the best possible writing on this. And I will say, you know, we, we talked earlier about the problems of, of law professors not playing the best role they could in being an intermediary between the court and its work and the people and their understanding of it. But Professor Grieve, I'll say, is definitely an exception to that rule. For, for so many years, he's written not just law review articles and, and books, but essays on the court helping the public to understand it lots of them at for our friends at law and liberty and elsewhere and this latest article again in the winter 2020 issue of national affairs is just the latest example of it i don't know if i've done justice to it in this discussion so please as soon as the podcast ends look it up for yourselves but again the title of the article is is the roberts court legitimate by michael s greva he's been our guest for the hour michael thank you so much for joining us thank you adam thanks as always to our listeners for joining us again Please join us again for the next episode of Unprecedential.